You are the best Christian somebody knows. Kelly and I had a Sunday school teacher that used to tell us that the end of Sunday school every single week. And I remember thinking that that was a lot of pressure to put upon us. Through the years, I've come to realize that this is an accurate statement. Every believer in Jesus Christ and here this morning has at least one person, though likely several people, that consider them to be an example of what a Christian should be. Every day, unbelievers watch believers and they make decisions about Jesus, the Bible, church, salvation, and really just Christianity in general, based upon what they see in us. That's kind of a weighty thought, isn't it? That eternity, in a lot of ways, could hang in the balance based upon our example. And a common pushback to that is to say, well, I'm not an example, not me. In fact, several years ago, there was a a song called Don't Look at Me that was sort of about this very thing. The idea of the song was that since the singer was human, she was going to fail. So instead of looking to the singer as an example, look to Jesus. Now, certainly there is some truth to this statement. As flawed, fallen humans that have been redeemed by the grace of God, we are going to fail at one point or another. That is a given. Also, it is certainly true that Jesus alone is the only perfect example. But do these truths alleviate us from any responsibility of being good examples in the world? Is it legitimate for a believer in Jesus Christ to say, Don't look at me, look at Jesus. Well, let's look at what Jesus said. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light show shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus has given us a light, and that light is meant to shine. It is not meant to be put under a basket and hidden with statements like, don't look at me and look at Jesus. It is meant to shine in such a way that people will see our lives and they will honor and glorify God because of it. We are, we are meant to be examples for the world. The reality is, The world looks at believers every day and they make decisions based upon our lives. They expect that we are to be examples of who Jesus is and what Jesus was like. Jesus expects that we are to be examples in a lost and a dying world. That we are to be a light that shines in the darkness and that the lives we live, the examples we set, would help point people to Jesus Christ. So, no, it is not legitimate for a believer to say, don't look at me, look at Jesus. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are examples. And what we must be are examples that are worth imitating. So how do we do that? We're going to look at a passage today that will help us with this. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 4. Verse 14 is where we're going to start. That is on page 872 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Verse 14. 
The Apostle Paul writes and said, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. The title of the, the message this morning is An Example Worth Imitating. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. Lord, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come this morning and we do want to be lights that shine brightly for Jesus. We want the world to see us and understand who he is and how great he is. And we want the world to want Jesus because of the life that we live and the actions that we take and just the general, the, the people that we are. Let us be able to reflect the, the glory and the grace and the goodness of Jesus in our lives and the way that we go. God, it's today as we look at this passage. And fathers, we look at being an example worth imitating. Let us take it to heart. Let us realize that truly we are the best Christians. Someone know that we are meant to be an example in the world. Let us take that seriously and let us strive to be an example worth imitating that help point people to Jesus Christ. Father, I ask you today to fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Let it be about you today and who you are. Work in our lives. Let us be surrendered to you. Let us live differently tomorrow because of what's happened in here today. Be glorified in all things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I love how Paul starts the passage, this, what we're looking at, by saying he's not writing to shame them, but he's writing because he, he loves them. All that Paul's doing in this particular book and writing to them is not to embarrass them, it's not to humiliate them, it's not even really to call them on the carpet, it's because he loves them and he knows that the way they're living is not the way that they're supposed to. The reason they know that Paul loves them is because Paul is their father in the faith, he says in verse 15. Paul was the first one to go there to preach the gospel. Many, if not most of them, came to Christ under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So he already has a relationship with them. He has a vested interest in them in helping them to be the people that Jesus wants them to be. And in order to encourage them to be who they're supposed to be, to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, Paul does something that we might say, that we might say is strange. He tells them to, to imitate him. He doesn't want them to just do what he says. He wants them to, to do what he does. He, he tells them to, to imitate the manner of life that he had while he was there. Now, lest they think or lest we think that Paul just had an inflated view of himself, a few chapters later he'll say it this way. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. See, Paul knew that he wasn't the, he wasn't the ultimate pattern. Paul knew that he wasn't the ultimate example that everyone was to try to be like. Instead, Paul himself was an imitation of that pattern. Paul was an imitation of that example, Jesus. Paul's great desire in his life was to do as much as he could to live and be and act like Jesus. He wanted to live in such a way that if people followed his example, they would be following Jesus. Because Paul understood. Paul understood that he was an example. He understood that those that he helped lead to Jesus Christ would follow an example and he wanted it to be his. He understood that unbelievers who saw Paul would make decisions about who Jesus is and what Jesus was like based on Paul's life. So he wanted it to be a good example that he set. 
So he did his best to imitate Jesus. And then he said, imitate me. So I also imitate Jesus. As believers, we are examples. I mean, that is something we have to understand. Unbelievers rightfully expect that if we, I mean, think about what we are as Christians. We, we claim that God took on human flesh and, and walked on the earth in a sinless life. Did miracles, taught great things, and yet was rejected and crucified and died for the sins of the world. His death wasn't permanent as he rose from the dead. And he offers new life to any who would believe. He promises to put his spirit within them. To give them a home in heaven. Rewards and blessings now and in the life to come. Unbelievers hear all of that. This amazing story that we profess to believe. And they understand. If we really believe like that's true. If we really believe that's true. We ought to live like that's true. We ought to live like the one that has redeemed us. We ought to live like the one that said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They they rightfully expect that. But more importantly, Jesus expects that as well. Jesus expects that we will imitate him in our actions and our reactions. In our priorities, our attitudes, and our values. That is his expectation of all of us. That we would follow him. We would imitate him. So when you take these together, here's the central truth we have for this particular message. I am an example. So I must be one worth imitating. And I just want you, even if you're not a person that normally takes notes... I would like for you to write that down or text that to yourself or something. Write down, I am an example. Even if you only write down that first part, I am an example. Since that's the case, I must be one worth imitating. So how do I do that? How can I be an example worth imitating? Thankfully, Paul gives us the answer to this. He mentions Timothy in our passage. That Timothy came and he was going to teach them or remind them of his ways in Christ. And everywhere and in every church. And so I want us to look at a passage where Paul calls on Timothy to be an example. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. It's page 911 in your pew Bibles. 1 Timothy 4 and 12. Let no one despise your youth. Be an example to the believers in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. Now, I like the King James translation better here. Be Thou an example. In other words, you, reader, you be an example. Now, we're familiar with this verse, but we often associate it with youth events, youth rallies, church camp, vacation Bible school, and things like that. And we say, we teach it to our kids, be an example to those around you. Certainly, that is a valid application of this passage, but it is not the primary application. We have to understand At the time Paul wrote this to Timothy, Timothy was not a 15-year-old high school student that needed to be an example for his peers. 
At the time Paul wrote this to Timothy, he was a grown man pastoring a church. In fact, the word youth that is used there, it could be used to describe anyone 40 years and under. Nobody knows for sure exactly how old Timothy was, but several of the commentaries I read, they speculated that he was likely in his 30s. So this isn't a a verse to teach kids and say, this is for you, but grown-ups have different verses to learn. This is a verse for all of us. And in this, Paul tells us how to be an example worth imitating. And he tells us first, be an example in my speech. And I found it interesting that Paul not only mentions speech in this passage as something we are to be an example in, but it's first. Now, I don't know that it first being, means it has a greater importance than other things, but still, we live in a day where so many people tell us, even believers, that the way we talk doesn't matter. It's just something you do. That, 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 that the words we say are not meaningful beyond words. Right? And yet, Paul tells us that if we are to be an example worth imitating, we have to be an example in our speech. Now, why is it that Paul would even mention, much less start the idea of being an example in our speech? It's because words matter. Look at what Jesus said. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. Now, The next sentence is so key to what Jesus is saying because we would expect the next verses to launch off into some sort of wicked immorality. But notice what he says. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do words matter? Because they reflect the condition of our hearts. Angry words reflect an angry heart. Profane words reflect a profane heart. Condemning and judgmental words reflect a bitter heart. Everything we say matters because it says something about the condition of our heart. Positive words. They say something about the positive condition of our hearts. Encouraging words say something about the condition of our hearts. Every word we say says something about who we are in the depth of our being. What is in our heart comes out in our life. And whether that is good or whether that is evil, it's a testimony. In fact, Jesus in Matthew will later say, for by your words you will be condemned or by your words you will be justified. The idea is that our words are such a reflection of our hearts That one could merely look at the way we speak and determine whether or not we have truly been born again. Whether or not we have truly been filled with the Spirit and the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Every word we ever say says something about who we are. Deep within the very core of our being. That's why our words matter. And and I've said this before. But I'm convinced that one thing that would help us in this is if we think before we speak. But think is an acronym. Is it true? This is huge. Is it true? That's important. Whether we're posting on Facebook or whether we're telling a story we heard, is it true? 
if we don't know if it's true, or we know that it's not true, we probably shouldn't say it. Is it helpful and is it inspiring? I'm going to take those two together. Do you know that not everything you say to someone is particularly helpful to them? Not everything you say to someone particularly inspires them to be better, to change, or to do different. Several years ago, well, in fact, I would say many times the things we say are discouraging instead of inspiring, unhelpful instead of helpful. Several years ago, I was talking to someone that was important to me, a person that's a, that I love and is care for, and about something I wanted to do and try here at the church. And here's, here was their, their words. If you do that, nobody will come anymore. Oh, that was helpful. Oh, that was inspiring. Made a difference in my life for the positive. No. No, it didn't. I would say that most of the time, the most discouraging and hurtful words I've ever heard, they were not from people who did not like me. They weren't from people who were trying to hurt me. It was from people who didn't think, and they didn't care whether it was helpful or inspiring. It was just something they thought, and so they determined they needed to say it. Something off the cuff. Is it necessary? Oh, goodness. How important is this? Is it necessary? Do you know that not everything you think needs to be said? Let me give you a promise. I will make you an absolute guarantee right here. I don't do that often, but I'll make one right now. If you think something in your mind and you want to say it and you don't, here's what I promise you. Your head will not explode. It won't happen. I promise, I can guarantee you, it will not happen. Although, if it does, I will apologize as I preach your funeral. That I'll guarantee as well. Just because you think it in your mind does not mean it needs to come out of your mouth or come out of your fingers on Facebook. Is it necessary? Does it need to be said? And, and, and in the idea of helpful, inspiring, and necessary... Let me say, very few people would say I'm negative. Very few people would say I, I'm uninspiring, I'm unhelpful, I'm discouraging in my speech. Here's what we say instead. I'm a realist. I'm honest. Me. Let me just say. Very few people need your dream-crushing, real statements. They just don't. If what they're dreaming or what they're wanting to do is not going to come to pass, it won't come to pass. They don't need you to suck the joy out of their life with your words. Don't say it. And then lastly, is it kind? One of the things I have learned in a house full of girls is that how I say something is infinitely more important than what I say. I can say the right thing in the wrong tone of voice and I am still wrong. Growing up in a house full of men, that wasn't an issue. But the girls, well, that matters. So is it kind? Is the way you're saying it kind? I mean, if it's really true, if it's really helpful, if it's inspiring and it's necessary, are you saying it in a kind way? That all matters. How you talk is a reflection of your heart. Speech declares the condition of our heart. So we are to be an example in our speech. Be an example in your speech that's worth imitating. 
Secondly, be an example in my conduct. In speech, in word, and in conduct. The way we live, the way we, we act. As believers in Jesus Christ, we represent Jesus Christ everywhere we go. And the way that we live, the way we conduct ourselves, it should, it should declare the greatness and the goodness of the person whose name by which we are called. And Paul tells us to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. But the calling is the call to salvation. This isn't a special for preachers or missionaries. If you have been called by Jesus Christ to salvation, if you're a believer, you have been. Then you need to walk worthy of that calling, walk worthy of that name. And he tells us exactly how to do it with, with lowliness. It's humility. We walk worthy of Jesus. We don't think we're better than everybody else. With gentleness. Gentleness is, is, is the opposite of being harsh. When you think about how Jesus interacted with people, how often was he harsh? Very rarely. Most of the time, he was very gentle with people, very kind in how he dealt, dealt with them. That should be the way we are as well. With, with long-suffering. Right? That's the opposite of short-tempered. We should not, believers in Jesus Christ, should not fly off the handle all the time. Bearing with one another. This means putting up with people that are difficult. Now, one of the truths has helped me with this. Because I'm not good at that. I'm just going to be honest, I'm not. One of the things that has helped me in this is to realize... For every person I find difficult and have to bear with, there is at least one other person in the world that finds me difficult and has to bear with me. Right, right now, when I said difficult people, somebody pop into your mind that you have to bear with, you have to put up with. But understand, you popped into somebody else's mind too. Somewhere, there is somebody that has to put up with you. Since they put up with you, you put up with others. That's the way we're supposed to be. Love. Uh, the reason we are lowly, gentle, long-suffering, and we bear with one another is because we love people. We'll talk about love in just a second. But love is a motivator for all of these things. And we strive to keep the unity of peace. Believers in Jesus Christ shouldn't be divisive people at work. We shouldn't be the people that are stirring up strife and conflict. We should be peacemakers that are working to resolve the conflict, bring people together. At the very least, we shouldn't be the people that are causing the conflict. How we conduct ourselves in here, it matters. But how we conduct ourselves out there matters too. How you conduct yourself at the restaurant this afternoon matters. How you conduct yourself at work tomorrow, it matters. How you conduct yourself at sporting events matters. How you conduct yourself on the weekends when you're out of town matters. How you conduct yourself on social media matters. How we conduct ourselves no matter where we are matters. We are to be an example in our conduct. So we must be an example worth imitating. Be an example in my love. In love, in conduct and in love. 
first I was kind of surprised at love like I was speech. But as I thought about it, I don't think I should have been because of what Jesus said. New commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. You also love one another by this. We all know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. So the characteristic, what should be a characteristic of believers in Jesus Christ, is our love for others. And that's important to understand. Because so often, the modern American church, we, we pick other things that we think should be the defining characteristic. Our, our political affiliation. Right? Things along those lines that are really earthly, temporary, and, and have no eternal significance. But what should define us should not be what we're against, but what we're for. What should define us should be our love for others. And as hard as that sounds, to love one another, Jesus doesn't keep it easier. He makes it more difficult. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do the same. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, there's some difficulty right there. I mean, don't get me wrong. Loving anyone as much as, I, as, Jesus, as much as Jesus has loved me is a pretty tough command. But this, that's brutal. Our love for people isn't just for our family, my wife and my children. My church, other believers. It is for those who intentionally seek to do me harm. I, I am to love those that, that oppose me, those who talk about me, those who ridicule me, mock me. And, and if all I do is love people who love me, Jesus said that's not that big of a deal. Even unbelievers can muster up the strength to love people who love them. What are you different than others? What shows that we're different? What shows that we've been changed? Our love for those who do not love us. Our love for those who are not like us. That is how we are supposed to be. So what does an example in love look like? It looks like this. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Does not provoke. Thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, let's take it just a minute to talk about what some of those mean. Love suffers long. It's long-suffering. When I love someone, I don't fly off the handle at them all the time. I'm not easily provoked. Love is kind. Kindness, biblically, takes the initiative to do what needs to be done. When I love someone and I see they're struggling, I take the initiative to help. I don't wait for them to ask for my, my help. Love does not envy. I, I don't, I'm not jealous of the success or possessions or anything of someone I love. Love does not parade itself. The idea is that love doesn't flaunt itself or love is not puffed up. These go together. It means I'm not, I don't think I'm better than those that I love. I mean, have you ever noticed it's really hard to love someone you're convinced you're extremely better than? When I love someone, I don't see myself as being better than them. Love does not behave rudely. I don't ever put down or degrade or demean the people I love. Love does not seek its own. 
When I, when I love someone, I don't always have to have my way. I can put their needs, their wants, and their desires ahead of my own. Love is not provoked. Again, it goes with the idea of not, not jumping and flying off the handle. I, I don't just easily get angry at them. Thinks no evil. Uh, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Thinks no evil means I think the best of them. Like when I love someone and they say they'll do something, I don't go, <laughs> yeah, right. right. That's not love. Um, it's not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. When I love someone, I don't rejoice in their failures, their flaws. It doesn't make me happy that they don't succeed or that they get caught in sin or embarrassed by something. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. When I love someone, I don't quickly give up on them. I, I always hope for the best, always believe the best, want the best for them. One of the things I learned years ago to make this passage even more challenging was to insert my name where love was mentioned. So I'm going to read it again and insert my name where love should be. And as you read through it, I want you to do that with your own name as well. Stacy suffers long and is kind. Stacy does not envy. Stacy does not parade himself. Stacy is not puffed up. Stacy does not behave rudely. He does not seek his own. He is not provoked and he thinks no evil. Stacy does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Stacy bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Stacy's love never fails. Well, that's pretty challenging. Let me ask you, as you read through that, insert your name, does it ring true with how you live? those that you love i mean at this point let's not even focus on those people just think about those closest to you your friends your spouse your children does that ring true with them it should it should also ring true with them because that's the example we're supposed to set jesus has loved us with this kind of love in turn, we are to love others with that kind of a love. We are to be an example of love. And in fact, we are an example of love. So we should strive to be one worth imitating. Fourthly, be an example in my zeal. The next thing he says is in spirit. If you notice, it's a little, case, little lowercase s. It doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit, but instead it refers to our zeal or our passion, particularly in our service and our devotion to Jesus. I think it would be clear when we read through Scripture that believers in Jesus were excited about serving Jesus. There was a, a passion that they had. Uh, they were, well, they were, they were zealous for Jesus. They, they were excited about opportunities to serve Him, to worship Him, to, to do the things that He wanted them to do. And for us, that, that's the, the example that we're to follow. I mean, our... Our service to Jesus should be something we're excited about. Our opportunities to gather and worship Jesus should be an exciting opportunity for us, not a burden or an obligation. Our, our privilege, the opportunities we have to serve Jesus in some way, there should be an air of excitement about it as we do it. As believers, we shouldn't be more excited about a, a game, a nap, Vacation, movie, food, anything. 
than we are about our, our opportunities to worship and to serve Jesus. Now, there will, I believe, always be times where it's difficult to do this. We see it in Scripture. David had times where he was down. I think there will be times where it's difficult to be excited about opportunities. There will be times where the opportunities do become obligations and burdens. And that happens and we have to work through it. But I I think that we should be able to recognize that if that is not an occasional thing, but that is an all-the-time thing, something is wrong. I mean, just think about in your marriage. If everything you did for your spouse was a burden, bothered you, got on your nerves, good grief again, wouldn't you take that as a sign that something's not right in your marriage? If you have a friend and all every time it goes to do something with them or for them, it gets on your nerves. Isn't that a sign that that your friendship is not as it should be? If it's true in our earthly relationship, surely it's true in our, our heavenly ones. There should be an excitement in us about the opportunity to worship the Lord, to serve Jesus. In fact, our our worship, our our excitement about it should be contagious. Our zeal for serving Jesus should be such that other people want to serve Jesus because we do. That they just are, are so caught up in our excitement that they want to be a part of that too. You're an example in zeal, in your service and your worship to Jesus. Be one that's worth imitating. And then finally, be an example in my faith, not finally. See, I just got your hopes all up. Wasn't true. See, I'm sorry. Be an example in faith. At some point, people are going to want to know, why do you talk a certain way? Why do you conduct yourself a certain way? Why do you love difficult people? Why do you zealous in your service to Jesus? And, and the thing that should shine through is because we believe Jesus. Our faith in Jesus should be the defining factor that motivates our lives for Jesus. So as I was thinking about that, it's easy to get caught up in things like, you know, a mustard seed kind of faith or moving mountains. But I think faith, as Paul meant it, writing to Timothy, who was pastoring a church, who was timid and and had problems going on. I think it was probably more practical than just believe it's all going to get better. I believe it was more practical than pray and command that mountain to move. I believe Paul's, what Paul's talking about here is very practical because Paul was a very practical guy. You know, Paul in his service, it was hard. Paul's life was difficult in his service to Jesus. And yet through it all, one of the things Paul always said was Jesus was worth it. Paul did what he did because Jesus was great. Paul did what he did because Jesus and what Jesus had given him and done for him was awesome. Therefore, Paul would endure all things because of the greatness of Jesus. And the Bible testifies that Jesus is great. That what Jesus offers us is better than what the world offers us. So how do I show that that's true in my life? I believe it. And so I live in a way that demonstrates that this is true. I like this passage because I find it so challenging to me personally. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, 
cannot tell. For I'm hard-pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy and faith. Now, for Paul, Jesus was really what it was all about. He understood Jesus was really, really great. He understood Jesus had done something really, really great in him. And so all of Paul's life was wrapped up in the greatness of Jesus. Right? Paul, to Paul, Jesus was so great that death was gain. I mean, that's a pretty amazing statement all on its own, right? Paul was in prison. He wasn't sure 100% what the release, what was going to happen. He goes so far as to say that I'm, I'm kind of torn. Right? If they were to come to me and say, live or die, Paul, your choice, wasn't sure what he would say. He knows that they need him, and if he stayed, he would be faithful in service to Jesus to do the things Jesus wanted to do, and it would help others. But if they killed him, it would send him to be with Jesus, and that was far better than anything else. He was caught between the two. It's pretty amazing. Jesus was the driving force of Paul's life because he understood how great Jesus was and how great everything Jesus had done for him was. Let me ask you this. What is the driving force of your life? I mean, what is... If there was something, if you were going to answer this question, for me to live is what? How, how do you fill in that blank in your life? To live is pleasure. To live is possessions. To live is popularity. What? I mean, to live is Christ. What is the, how do you fill in that blank? What gets you up in the morning? I mean, is there anything more compelling than an alarm clock that makes you get up and get around and do what you do on a daily basis? What is the one thing that you want to do more than anything else in the world? Biblically, we should all answer Jesus, right? I mean, we know that. That's the right answer. But is that the real answer? I think... We would all say, if I were to go around and say, do you think Jesus is as great as the Bible says? We would all say yes. If I were to go around the room and say, do you think what Jesus gives is, is great? We would all say yes. But do I believe that enough to live like this? Does my faith in that, my, my words, testify to that? My life testify to that? Because the life we live, really more than anything, testify to what we really believe. So when we really believe we're an example in faith, our lives are marked by devotion to Jesus because He's better than anything else. And, and this isn't a part of my sermon notes, but if you want to be challenged today, do this. Go home, read Romans 12.1. Meditate for a, few minutes, for a few minutes on the idea of being a living sacrifice. Then, go to Malachi chapter 1. And read what God says to people that offered subpar sacrifices. They offered sacrifices that were less than their best. It's a challenge. And in the end, the reason they offered subpar sacrifices is because they did not believe that God was as great as He said He was. In the end, the, the, the life we live testifies of our faith far more than anything else that we do. You and I, we are examples in our faith and the greatness, the goodness, and the majesty of Jesus. Let's be examples worth imitating. And then, finally, this time it's for real. 
Be an example in my purity. Be an example in purity. Immorality was very common in Paul's day, just as it is in ours. The type of immorality was not vastly different then than it is in ours, and yet believers are called to live differently. Peter says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to your former lusts, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. A couple things. One, as obedient children, we are children of God as believers in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have a responsibility to uphold the family name, so to speak. And the way that we uphold the family name is by not living the way that we did before we knew Jesus. Think of it like this. I heard a guy tell a story. And when he was born, his mother abandoned, or not when he was born, he was about one. His mother abandoned him and his brother in an abandoned house. And many days later, a police officer was walking the beat and heard the children crying from inside this house that was locked and they could not get out. And when the officer came in, they were nearly dehydrated. They were about to starve. And their diapers were so filthy, they refused to their bodies. And that police officer rescued them. And then he adopted them. And he raised them as his own. And he said that as he grew up, there were things he didn't do as a teenager. Because he did not want to bring shame to the name of the man that had saved him. He was a good man that had saved him. He had a good name, and he didn't want to do anything to bring shame to that name. God has saved us. He has brought us up out of judgment and sin, and we should not want to do anything to bring shame to that name. As obedient children, we should live differently now than we did before we were saved. We do this in part because we want to be an accurate reflection of the character and the nature of the one that has saved us. He is holy, so we are to be holy. I think it's also important for us to understand that, that holiness and purity, this is not a, a burden to be born. Why do we want to be pure in our life? It's because sin is bad. Right? As much as Sin is pleasurable. Sin has consequences. And one of the main consequences sin has is it it hurts, it separates, it destroys our relationship with Jesus. You and I, we cannot walk in sin and in a close relationship with Jesus at the same time. We have to choose which one we want to leave in, which one we want to experience. As believers... We have experienced the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ and we want more. We want to experience His presence. We want to experience His goodness. We want to experience His grace. So what do we do? We try to keep from our lives anything that would hinder our experience of His goodness and His grace. We know the goodness of Jesus is better than the pleasures of the world. We know that the the grace of Jesus is better than what the world offers us. So we choose to live a pure life. Not to be legalistic. Not to be better than others, but because we know Jesus and we want more of Jesus in our lives. And so we, be, we, are, we are sure to do all that we can to keep sin or anything that hinders that out of our lives. As we strive to live pure lives, we, we are an example of the world around us. We're an example 
that Jesus is better than the pleasures of this world. Jesus is better than what this world offers us. You and I, we, we are examples in purity one way or another. Let's be sure that we are examples worth imitating. So as we come to the end, the, the question is, what kind of example am I? Because we are examples. That's, not, that's a given. So let me ask like the husbands. As the spiritual leaders of your home, does your example, if your family imitates your example, are they going to be following Jesus and closer to Jesus? Or are they going to be further from Jesus and not following Jesus? As parents, if our children follow our example, will that lead them to the place where they commit their lives and they follow Jesus or it lead them to another place where maybe Jesus isn't that great and that important. As you go out to work tomorrow, if the younger Christians who see you and think you're the best Christian they know, if they follow your example, will they be following Jesus or will they be following someone else? Will your example lead them closer to Jesus or further away? And you think that's a burden to bear. Now, I shouldn't have to worry about others, but the reality is we do. Over and over again, we are told not to just worry about ourselves, but others. Paul repeatedly limited his liberty, his freedom in Christ to do what was not sinful so that he could help other people live for Jesus and come to know Jesus. We are not our own. And our will and our want and our desires should never be the driving force of our lives. We absolutely have to care about what others think. We absolutely have to be careful about leading someone astray through our speech, our conduct, through our love, through our faith, through our purity. We have to be careful of those things. You are an example. What kind are you? Let's stand as our musicians come forward.